Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 201st episode of the Nauticast, titled Aftermath, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 6, in which Tyrion thinks nothing can be worse than his loveless marriage to Sansa, until his family tells him that, no, no, there are many, many worse things. What else is family for? His family being one of those many worse things. <laughs> right? Most of the worst things. This is this is the most of the call is coming from inside the house chapter of them all. Our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. So normally we get a question from one of our $10 and above patrons. Uh, we start off every episode with, you can check that out at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our sworn sword and higher tier patrons get to ask us questions that we answer in these episodes. But since we just wrapped up Act 2 of A Storm of Swords, culminating with The Red Wedding, had to take a little break from that and do our episode on Season 3 of Game of Thrones, which is available for everybody now. But since now we're jumping into Act 3 of A Storm of Swords, into a whole other part of the story entirely, I thought we'd talk about some of the stuff we are most looking forward to covering now. Because I think for both of us, we were really looking forward to The Red Wedding. So what's coming up next that we're, that we're most excited about? Oh man, this was a tough one. I actually suggested this question, and I still don't have any good answers for it. <laughs> Because unlike, say, the, you know, three books we've covered or are in the process of covering right now, there is no clear, like, Blackwater or Red Wedding in the material that we have available to us to really point to. That's We true. know they're coming. We know there's a banger, Aeron chapter coming in the Winds of Winter. We expect Battles of Ice and Fire. But obviously, Feast Dance is kind of it's a different story or a different type of story than what really is the first three books of of the saga. So um, it's a lot of slower build, smaller moments. I really love everything about the Northern plot in A Dance with Dragons. Um, that includes what Davos is doing in White Harbor, but especially the Greyjoy stuff that being uh, Theon, or rather, should I say Reek? Um, I think Reek 1 is just one of those chapters where I remember reading that chapter specifically like, oh, this is what's happening. Yeah. Um, and then the way that that uh, storyline kind of pays off at the end in Asha's chapter, uh, the sacrifice when you got to remember your name or whatever the exact line is. Um, I think that sticks out. Um, and then with A Feast for Crows, which I think is maybe George's best written book, um, I just really love all the Jamie and Brienne stuff. Um, I especially love Jamie at River Run. There's just so much good stuff there. Uh, I, I could go on forever and I will go on forever when we get to those chapters, <laughs> but it's kind of more of a vibe with, you know, some of the feast and stuff. It's just like what kind of hits to your soul um, as opposed to like the big shocking moments uh, that we've already had so far in our coverage. Yeah, that is a great way of putting it. I always think like the moment in feast that kind of sums it up for me is the end of the, uh, the crack claw point chapter with Brienne, where she goes off with nimble Dick crab and he says he's going to get her two people that she hopes are Sansa and Dantos Hollard. And we know it's not true because we know Dantos is dead and then Sansa is in the veil. So we already know this is not going to not going to work. And then they get there and it's the bloody mummers and they kill uh, they kill Nimble Dick and Brienne has to fight them. It's the kind of chapter where if you look at it purely from like a uh, perspective of plot structure and momentum, you're like, why does this chapter exist? Like, again, we already know where Sansa is. We know this isn't going to work. These are secondary characters. What's going on? But it leads to Brienne saying to Nimble Dick's corpse, I'm sorry that I never trusted you. I don't know how to do that anymore. And then she buries him while she imagines the heads whispering in the stories he told. And like, that's so 
so beautiful. I don't really care that Nimble Dick Crab doesn't matter for Endgame. Like, that's not the point. And so many great chapters in Feast and Dance bring that out of me. Yeah, Brienne chapters especially. The Jamie chapters are, are so beautifully written, I think, even better than A Storm of Swords. All, yeah, all the Northern stuff in, in Dance is great, and I think that's the more kind of uh, exciting kind of more Storm of Swords-ish stuff uh, is on the North in Dance, like when you get to all the paranoid conspiracies going on in Winterfell and all the great stuff going on in those John chapters uh, are so great. I really love the Ironborn stuff in Feast too. I know it's not to, to everyone's taste, but I think that's a really well done story structure kind of exploring how how bankrupt the old way ideology is and how kind of easy it is for Euron to hijack it like he's, he's done with his brothers. I think that's all great and really, really revealing stuff. I think, you know, Feast and Dance are are messy, but they're really, really beautiful. And I think it's the opposite of Storm. Storm has the, the extremely tight structure, as we've been covering, the really great building of momentum and release of catharsis. Feast and Dance work a little differently, but there's so much beautiful stuff that I can't wait to cover with you. Yeah, I know a lot of people give A Dance with Dragons a hard time as, like, nothing happens. Um, but I still kind of find the last third, like, exhilarating. Like, chronologically, let's say where the Feast chapters start coming into A Dance with Dragons, like the Arya and Cersei. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there just ends up being so much going on. There's Cersei's walk. There's uh, Victarion arriving just outside Slaver's Bay. There's Griff heading east, or west, rather, and arriving at uh, Westeros. So even though, like, we're setting up the bigger things that are going to launch the Winds of Winter, like everything that's happening in the last like half to third of that book um, just always has me on the edge of my seat. Um, John's great rallying speech before he gets shift to death is, you know, great. It's like one of the highest moments immediately followed by the lowest moment possible. Um, <laughs> exactly. So I really like it. I'm really excited to cover it. And even though we've kind of like passed the pinnacle of, you know, the Song of Ice and Fire moments, um, I think there's still just so much good stuff left to come. Yeah, agreed. Now, the last third of Dance, I think, is up there with the last third of Storm for me. I think it does suffer from losing the Battle of Fire. Marine does very feel like a next time in Slaver's Bay <laughs> when you get to the end of Dance. But it's the stuff, <laughs> the material itself is still so beautiful. And we still have great stuff, of course, to come in the Storm of Swords. We're into Act 3. Our focus is going to be shifting away now from the Riverlands towards King's Landing, as we'll be covering in this chapter, and the Wall, as we'll get into uh, later, uh, and we, as we go into to John chapters and Sam chapters, uh, and then there's we have some wrap up stuff in the Riverlands, a couple of great Danny chapters left in Slaver's Bay, Dragonstone before that plot moves. So Act Three of Storm of Swords, even though we're past the Red Wedding, the momentum continues, and there's still still some of the best stuff to come. But we are here today to talk about one chapter specifically. We're here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, Tyrion Six. So let's jump into the synopsis. They supped alone, as they did so often. The peas are overcooked, his wife ventured once. No matter, he said. So is the mutton. It was a jest, but Sansa took it for criticism. I am sorry, my lord. Why? Some cooks should be sorry, not you. The peas are not your province, Sansa. I... I am sorry that my lord husband is displeased. Whew, that's awkward. At least there's no shitty musicians hanging around this time. As Tyrion says, he has got many worse things on his plate, so to speak, than mediocre vegetables. There's Joffrey for the soup course, Cersei for the salad course, Big Daddy Tywin for the entree, and for dessert, 300 bloody Dornishmen. Tyrion has been trying his best to keep the peace between Oberyn and literally everybody else, but it's not going well. Dornish soldiers are brawling with those from the Reach. And Olena referred to Ilaria as the Serpent's Whore. Well, they don't call her the Queen of Thorns for nothing. Oberyn himself keeps asking Tyrion when the justice will be served, and vipers, literal or otherwise, aren't exactly known for their patience. 
But Tyrion doesn't want to burden Sansa with any of that, so instead he calls Podrick Payne for more peas. <sighs> Tough alliteration on that. Sansa sells shells down by the seashore. <laughs> After the peas are finally done, Sansa asks if she can visit the godswood. She is taken to praying to both the old gods and the seven. Tyrion, reddit atheist that he is, thinks all that prayer is over the top, but he concedes that in her position, he'd be looking for a little divine intervention too. Sorry, Sansa. Cold Hands isn't here to save the day. Pray harder next time. Tyrion offers to come with, but Sansa immediately shuts that shit down. She can't smoke a bowl and crank up her Olivia Rodrigo playlist if Tyrion's <laughs> hanging around. Plus, she says, Tyrion would be bored. And Tyrion has to admit that, yeah, that's true. Sansa knows him better than he thought. Hooray for marriage, I guess? At least Tyrion doesn't ask what Sansa prays for, knowing that her honest answer would be, The death of your family, my lord husband. After Sansa leaves, Tyrion returns to what is now his day job, trying to make sense of the royal finances, aka Littlefinger's continent-wide Ponzi scheme. It's especially difficult because Joffrey flung a bunch of supposed Stannis loyalists over the walls, only for it to turn out that most of them owed the crown money. Isn't that convenient? Ah, but don't think about that too closely, dear reader, because remember the Red Wedding, that thing that happened like three pages ago? Time to jump back in. Tyrion is summoned to see his father and finds him surrounded by Kevon, Pycelle, Cersei, and Joffrey, who looks happy, which means someone somewhere must be very unhappy indeed. What's happened? Tyrion asked. His father offered him a roll of parchment. Someone had flattened it, but it still wanted to curl. Rosalind caught a fine fat trap, the message read. Her brothers gave her a pair of wolf belts for her wedding. Tyrion turned it over to inspect the broken seal. The wax was silvery gray, and pressed into it were the twin towers of House Frey. Does the Lord of the Crossing imagine he's being poetic, or is this meant to confound us? Tyrion snorted. The trout would be Edmure Tully. The pelts? He's dead. Joffrey sounded so proud and happy you might have thought he'd skinned Rob Stark himself. Goddamn. How close are we to his wedding? Like six, seven chapters? Not nearly close enough. Tyrion thinks that neither the old nor the new gods are answering Sansa's prayers, and he takes comfort in that. Again, Reddit Epic Bacon Atheist, circa 2013. <laughs> Balin Greyjoy has also died in the centuries that seems to have passed since we last had a Tyrion chapter, and Tyrion notes that their war seems to be winning itself. Cersei kisses up to Big Daddy Tywin, saying no, he's winning the war, to which Tywin responds that the war ain't over yet. Cersei points out that the Riverlords are now hopelessly outnumbered and will have no choice but to bend the knee. Tywin concedes that the worst person you know has made a great point, heartbreaking, because, yeah, even stubborn holdouts like Jason Malister, Tytos Blackwood, and, of course, Brendan Blackfish can be isolated and contained. They will all eventually surrender, and Tywin will accept their surrender, with one exception. Harrenhal, said Tyrion, who knew his sire, the realm is best rid of these brave companions. I have commanded Sir Gregor to put the castle to the sword. Gregor Clegane. It appeared as if his lord father meant to mine the mountain for every last nugget of ore before turning him over to Dornish justice. I never thought I'd say this, Tyrion, but you are giving your dad too much credit. Joffrey, annoyed that no one's looking at him, <laughs> declares that he wants all of Rob's vassals given the reins of Castamere treatment. And while we're at it, he wants Walder Frey to send him Rob Stark's head so he can serve it to Sansa at his wedding feast. Eh, still probably tastier than what they served at the twins. Kevon is shocked. Shocked, he says, at Joffrey's behavior. Cersei tries to cover it up as a joke, but Joff, as usual, undercuts Mom and insists he's going to have Sansa kiss Rob's head. Again, how soon does this kid die? Could we speed that up a little bit? 
Tyrion speaks up for his child bride, saying that she's no longer Joffrey's plaything, and calling Joff a monster for good measure. Joff says, nuh-uh, you're the monster, no backsies. Am I? Tyrion cocked his head. Perhaps you should speak more softly to me, then. Monsters are dangerous beasts, and just now kings seem to be dying like flies. I could have your tongue out for saying that, the boy king said, reddening. I'm the king. Cersei put a protective hand on her son's shoulder. Let the dwarf make all the threats he likes, Joff. I want my lord father and my uncle to see what he is. Lord Tywin ignored that. It was Joffrey he addressed. Aerys also felt the need to remind men that he was king, and he was passing fond of ripping tongues out as well. You could ask Cyrillin Payne about that, but you'll get no reply. Hey Tywin, why did the Mad King rip out Ellen Payne's tongue? Wasn't it for saying you were really in charge? Eh, details, baby, details. <laughs> Cersei does her usual, how dare anyone challenge my flawless baby boy shtick, with which Tywin loses patience even faster than Tyrion. Grandpa War Crimes decides now's the time to lecture Joffrey about real politic and the trappings of power. I would say better late than never, but this is really damn late. <laughs> Tyrion expects Joffrey to knuckle under to Grandpa War Crimes, but is delighted to be wrong when the Boy King instead defies Tywin, saying that, hey, you were afraid of the Mad King, and my dad Robert did the actual hard work of overthrowing the Targaryens. Mixed record on the facts there, kid, especially the my dad Robert part, but I'm with Tyrion. Any day where someone flips off Tywin is a good day. Tywin, after trying and failing to set Joffrey on fire with his mind, politely tells him to fuck off and die, before ordering Kevon and Pycelle to drug the boy king into a convenient stupor. Ah, the sweet Robin technique. Never fails, until it does. Tywin keeps Cersei in the room so he can ask what in the seven hells she has been teaching this little brat of hers. As per usual, she pins it all on Robert, who can't disagree, being very conveniently dead. Tyrion, meanwhile, sits back, munches popcorn, and quotes Joffrey's best lines. Who knew this is all it would take for uncle and nephew to finally get along? Roasting grandpa war crimes. Fun for the whole family. Tywin reminds Cersei that she said Joffrey didn't care about Robert at all. Cersei says Robert was a shitty dad. Which, true, but very telling that the example she picks is when Joffrey cut open a cat. No, I'm sorry, some mischief with a cat, as Cersei calls it. Eh, just a prank. Boys will be boys. Serial killers will be serial killers. Nothing to see here. <laughs> Tywin finally kicks Cersei out of the room, and Tyrion confronts his father with the truth. Joffrey isn't the next Robert. He's the next Mad King. Tywin says he still has time to, you know, psychologically terrorize Joff into compliance, Tywin's favorite thing besides all the war crimes. But Tyrion can tell that his dad is shaken by Joffrey's personality and behavior and just everything. Tyrion, however, wants to get back to the war crimes. Wars are won with quills and ravens. Wasn't that what you said? I must congratulate you. How long have you and Walder Frey been plotting this? I mislike that word, Lord Tywin said stiffly. Oh, you mislike the word, do you? <laughs> Trust me, Tywin, plotting is the nice way of describing the Red Wedding. Tyrion, meanwhile, is asking the most important question. Did Cersei find out before him? And she went in my room, and she played with my toys, and she always gets the most dessert. You get how this goes by now. Tywin says no one knew, except for those who needed to. Which, as it happens, included exactly none of his children. Besides, Tywin says, Tyrion talks too much. Once again, worst person, good point, heartbreaking. Tywin's had enough talking about his latest war crimes. Let's talk about some older war crimes, namely the ones against the Martells. Tywin is trying to figure out how to handle Oberyn. 
If only his brother Duran was here instead, Tywin says. He's cautious and reasoned. He'd never do anything unexpected. Fact check. Half true. But Oberyn? Well, he flew off the handle a long time ago. Tyrion has heard rumors that Oberyn responded to Robert's rebellion by trying to get Dorne behind Viserys instead. Until cooler heads prevailed. <laughs> Westeros really dodged a bullet there. <laughs> Tyrion offers to distract Oberyn with a walking tour of every brothel in town, but Tywin didn't really care for season 4 of Game of Thrones, so he says no. More seriously, Tyrion says that Oberyn won't be satisfied with Gregor's head. Well, too bad, says Tywin, because he's not even getting that. Gregor scares people, you see. And Tywin doesn't feel like picking up a new pet monster from the Spirit Halloween store, so Oberyn will have to content himself with the death of Amory Lorch, who, as it happens, is already dead. That worked out. It's not totally bullshit, Tywin insists. It was Amory who killed Princess Rhaenys. Tywin plans to tell Oberyn that Amory acted on his own to win favor from Robert. But of course, it was Tywin, who was actually hoping to kiss up to the new king with the traditional coronation gift of child corpses. Tyrion says he should have let Robert do it himself. Lord Tywin stared at him as if he had lost his wits. You deserve that, Motley, then. We'd come late to Robert's cause. It was necessary to demonstrate our loyalty. When I laid those bodies before the throne, no man could doubt that we had forsaken House Targaryen forever. And Robert's relief was palpable. As stupid as he was, even he knew that Rhaegar's children had to die if his throne was ever to be secure. Yet he saw himself as a hero. And heroes do not kill children. His father shrugged. I grant you, it was done too brutally. Elia need not have been harmed at all. That was sheer folly. By herself, she was nothing. Then why did the mountain kill her? Because I did not tell him to spare her. I doubt I mentioned her at all. I had more pressing concerns. Ned Stark's van was rushing south from the Trident, and I feared it might come to swords between us. And it was in Ares to murder Jamie, with no more cause than spite. That was the thing I feared most. That and what Jamie himself might do. He closed a fist. Nor did I yet grasp what I had in Gregor Clegane, only that he was huge and terrible in battle. The rape. Even you will not accuse me of giving that command, I would hope. Sir Amory was almost as bestial with Rhaenys. I asked him afterward why it had required half a hundred thrusts to kill a girl of... two, three? He said she'd kicked him, and would not stop screaming. If Lorch had half the wits the gods gave a turnip... He would have calmed her with a few sweet words and used a soft silk pillow. His mouth twisted in distaste. The blood was in him. But not in you, father. There is no blood in Tywin Lannister. Oh, yes there is, Tyrion. You will spill some of it yourself before the book is over. Tyrion drags the conversation back to Dad's present-day atrocities. Tywin says Rob was killed by an arrow. Which, true, along with another arrow, and another arrow, and also a sword through the heart, but sure. Tyrion notes that Catelyn was killed as well, and that Walder has torn apart guest right more gleefully than Joffrey cuts up cats. Tywin says, oh, the blood is on Walder's hands. But Tyrion points out that Walder wouldn't have taken those hands off his new wife long enough to do this without Tywin's patronage. Oh, I suppose you would have spared the boy and told Lord Frey you had no need of his allegiance? That would have driven the old fool right back into Stark's arms and won you another year of war. Explain to me why it is more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner. Well, Tyrion might have no reply to that, but we sure will. Mm -hmm. Tywin goes on to describe the new game board. Emmon Frey will get Riverrun. Lancel and Davin will marry Freys, as will Tyrion's bastard cousin Joy. Roose Bolton is the new Warden of the North. And oh yeah, he gets to take home Arya to marry off to Ramsay. Tyrion's not sure what bombshell to react to first. 
that Roos is part of this conspiracy, or that Arya is apparently alive and well and under their control. After all, Varys and Jocelyn Bywater couldn't find her. Yeah, and Renly died, Tywin says, which didn't stop him from showing up on the Blackwater. Even now, after the master plan is complete, Tywin just loves being cryptic for its own sake. Ah, but there's always a next master plan. And in this case, it's for Roos to fight the Ironborn, bring the other northern lords under his control, and then Tywin will pull the north right out from underneath him to give to Tyrion and Sansa's child. Oh, good plan, except for the none of it happening. Tyrion's just curious as to when he's supposed to be making this baby. Before breaking Sansa's heart yet again, or after? Well, thankfully, the answer will be neither. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 6. What did you think of this one, sir? You know, I uh, I expected a little bit of a hangover following the Red Wedding, that the immediate few chapters would be a drop-off. But nope. <laughs> Turns out I love this chapter. Not because it's the most exciting or even the most well-written, but because of how perfectly it crystallizes Tywin Lannister. In this chapter, we see two things. Why some people might think Tywin is a practical and calculated ruler, but more importantly, the cracks that prove that he is anything but. He wields the power of the state ruthlessly and cruelly, then hides behind some logical gotchas and clever-seeming phrases to give the presentation of propriety, an air of respectability politics. And this isn't just about me wanting to stick it to all the people on Twitter who think Tywin Lannister is a good ruler. (laughs) I do think fundamentally understanding who and what Tywin Lannister is is a very important part of George's story, one of the key pillars of the critique surrounding power and ruling. Agreed. As incredible as the Red Wedding is on its own terms, I think it honestly feels incomplete without this chapter giving it context. It doesn't deliver the same full-throttle fireworks in terms of style and emotional impact, but it's not trying to. Tyrion Six is about watching the worst people in the world, explaining, justifying, and celebrating the worst thing they've ever done. And there's a perverse pleasure to that, which is all due to how George engages his audience on an intellectual level as well as an emotional level. Having immersed the reader in fire and blood, he yanks us back to take a look at the puppet strings, forcing us to understand the Red Wedding not as the mind-shattering horror show it was on the ground, but as a political calculation, made at a distance by people who will never suffer for it. It's a different kind of horror than the Red Wedding itself, which felt like the world was ending as you read it. The horror here is that it didn't. The world just keeps on spinning. As speaking of the Red Wedding, honestly, the first thing I flagged about this chapter is that it opens up a lot like Cat 7. No, there aren't any pounding drums, but the discussion of an underwhelming meal opening this chapter just kind of gets to me. Though luckily for Sansa and Tyrion, the worst thing that happens at this meal is the poorly cooked peas. (laughs) The worst thing to happen in the whole war. (laughs) The peas are all wrong. Yeah, it's a great, great cut. It reminds me of early on in the Storm of Swords when we go from the prologue with Chet where at the end... The bottom drops out, we realize they're under attack by the others, and then we cut to that first Jamie chapter where he's like snuggling into the boat, and he's yawning, and the sun is out, and he's running his hands in the water. It's, I would love, I love how the show handles the Red Wedding, as we covered in our recent episode, but it, I would love a cut, like at the end of the Red Wedding, like it pans down to like a plate covered in blood or something, and it cuts right to Tywin and Sansa, Tyrion and Sansa with the peas. Like, it's such a great contrast. It's, it's so perfect, because it's like, this is happening at the same time as the Red Wedding. They're just eating. They don't know about it yet. It's it's great dramatic irony. It reminds me of that line from uh, the Blackfish in the show. Uh, it often comforts me to think that even in war's darkest days, 
in most places in the world, absolutely nothing is happening. And that's what we're cutting to here after the Red Wedding, after that apocalyptic violence. Here we are with Tyrion and Sansa where absolutely nothing is happening and the worst thing are the peas. Yet. <laughs> Yet, exactly. <laughs> uh, during Red Wedding Month, we spent a lot of time talking about the dissolution of norms, the tears in the societal fabric that occurred. Now we need to start talking about what that actually means in a material way. One of the results is that it further isolates people from each other, makes us more mistrusting, more lonely. Even though Tyrion and Sansa are unaware about what happened at the Twins to start this chapter, George thrusting us into a situation where two characters are pushing further away from each other sets the tone accordingly. The disconnect is made manifest in the discussion of peas, which as Tyrion acknowledges, is not really about the peas. There's a fundamental, pre-existing disconnect between Tyrion and Sansa due to Tywin Lannister's politicking that put a disabled adult in bed with a child. Tyrion tries to make jokes to bridge that gap, but Sansa has nothing to offer but empty apologies, because for her, where's the humor in any of this? Part of the gulf between them can also be attributed to how neither are really present in the moment, from like a mindfulness angle, I guess. Tyrion is preoccupied with matters of state, with his dad and Littlefinger's ledgers and the bubbling Tyrell Martell enmity. On the last one, I look forward on this reread to tracking that Reach-Dornish feud, because at least as of right now, it seems very one-sided, despite the long history of conflict between the houses. One-sided insofar as, while Olena is not so quietly negging Ilaria and the rest of the Dornishmen, <laughs> Prince Oberyn himself is more concerned with justice, aka Gregor Clegane and Tywin Lannister. The Lannisters will also be top of mind when we meet Arion, Doran, and the rest in A Feast for Crows. And with Oberyn's comments in Tyrion 5 that he and Willis Tyrell are in the same Discord server, it begins to feel like the Tyrells <laughs> be hating more on the Martells than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Though I will concede that in this brief moment, the Tyrells and Lannisters are one polity, so the Martells focusing on the Lannisters still keeps the Tyrells in their purview. Sansa's mind, meanwhile, is on the Godswood, which Tyrion logically concludes as piety. Her frequent visit to the Godswood and the Sept really shouldn't be interpreted any other way. Of course, we know about her little conspiracy with Sir Dantos, which is why she's quick to deny Tyrion's company when he offers. Her visit to the Great Sept then helps act as cover, further cover for this plot, as it just seems she's a young girl who is overly religious. Given what has befallen her family even prior to the Red Wedding, it's totally understandable that someone would seek solace and healing through religion. And of course, it's not like Sansa has a whole lot of other friends or planned activities, so these visits function as something to do, and a chance to be away from Tyrion and Joffrey and the other Lannisters. On that point, I'm guessing there's a 0% chance she ever bumps into Joffrey on her prayer rounds. <laughs> Joffrey doesn't strike me as particularly religious, that's true. And uh, yeah, I love what you were saying about how this marriage is a microcosm of the social alienation that was given full form at the Red Wedding. There is no way for them to communicate in an honest or meaningful way because there's no foundation for trust. They didn't choose this marriage, they have nothing in common, and they can't bring themselves to address those problems because there's nothing they can do about them anyway. As such, they have literally nothing to talk about. As Tyrion thinks, Sansa has enough grief without him bothering her with all his political problems. After all, her grief stems from the actions of the very regime Tyrion is trying to keep afloat the regime he almost single-handedly preserved in the last book. 
And Sansa, for her part, isn't about to tell Tyrion what's on her mind, because like you said, what's on her mind is a plan to get away from him and his whole rotten family during Joffrey's wedding. Even without knowing that, Tyrion isn't surprised that Sansa doesn't want to share her thoughts and feelings with him, as represented by her prayers. He knows that she is probably praying for Rob's victory and Joffrey's downfall. And despite Tyrion hating Joffrey, despite his occasional moments of sympathy for the Starks, he just can't get around his own last name. Joffrey's downfall would mean Tyrion's downfall as well. That's why Tyrion fought the Battle of Blackwater. What really makes this sting for the reader, I think, is that neither Sansa nor Tyrion actually hate each other. You can see them trying. Sansa uses her courtesies. Tyrion offers to accompany her to the godswood, like a husband actually in love with his wife might do. But none of it makes a difference. Sansa's courtesies are such obvious performances that any chance at intimacy immediately falls flat. Tyrion makes fun of the food, and Sansa, instead of kind of joining in the joke, she apologizes because she's been trained that this is her responsibility. Even though, as Tyrion points out, she has literally nothing to do with it. The prepared lines fall apart because there's nothing behind them. They're not building anything together, and any child would be a weapon against Sansa's own family. So they're stuck in this hilariously awkward situation where Tyrion feels the need to overcompensate and reassure Sansa by making Podrick pour all the peas in the world onto his plate. And now he has to eat them all or she'll apologize again, and Tyrion would rather throw himself off the Red Keep than hear his child bride apologize for dinner that she didn't cook again. <laughs> and Sansa departs mercifully. Tyrion returns to Littlefinger's QuickBooks, trying to make sense of his accounting practices. As a mercy to our listeners, I'm going to save the discourse on the seeds of capitalism originating in late medieval Italy for when we get to Bravos. Hell yeah. But that connection is very real. And, ba- and the Baelishes being originally from Bravos only feeds into that. One of the major changes from the feudal mode of production to the capitalist one is the fact that the goal of production was no longer just self-sufficiency for the fiefdom and selling off excess for minor profit. Instead, resources should never be idle and should always be put towards productive ends and profit maximization. In lieu of gold sitting in someone's coffers and or being used to furnish luxury, Littlefinger appears to be reinvesting the crown's funds, probably through methods we'd call debt financing these days. There's obviously more to that discussion that we can save for when we cross the Narrow Sea, but I'd be wrong to admit the fact that even if Littlefinger is a forward-looking proto-bourgeoisie, he still may just in fact be cooking the books. Well, I guess that just makes him bog-standard bourgeoisie. <laughs> Look no further than the PPP loans given out to the Antler Men, which we'll circle back to later this episode. Yeah, we'll put a pin in this for later. In terms of Tyrion's POV, it's interesting that he is just smart enough to realize that something very fishy is going on, but not smart enough to know what that something is exactly. And that's what Littlefinger's counting on. Since he's basically inventing the concepts of government speculation and investment in industry, at least as far as Westeros is concerned, he knows that no one else will be able to make sense of it. He's made himself indispensable by creating what Tyrion describes as a labyrinth for golden dragons, Financial corruption framed in mythological terms, like Littlefinger is both Minos with his maze and Midas with his golden touch. No one else can navigate it. And George drops this in here not only to remind us about Littlefinger's schemes while he remains offstage until the Purple Wedding, but also to emphasize that this kind of subtle long con is running under and around big explosive public events like the Red Wedding. Same deal with Sansa and the Peas or Tyrion worrying about Martell Tyrell relations. All of it is the context in which the Red Wedding is just another thing that happens. 
As Tyrion is summoned to find out about the Red Wedding, fittingly, he's greeted by a brisk wind and a smell of rain on the air. It's meteorologically consistent with the Great Storm system we've tracked all the way back to Bran III, A Storm of Swords, but of course lends itself further to the reigns of Castamere dominating the stretch of material. Tyrion instantly knows something's up when Joffrey is present for the meeting and that he's bouncing around the room like he just railed some lines of coke. <laughs> Coupled with Cersei's smile, you gotta think Tyrion is preparing himself for something awful coming his way, as Tyrion's suffering is one of the few things that can make both Joffrey and Cersei giddy. His lord father, Tywin Lannister, however, is as grim as ever, lending truth to Jenna Lannister's comments in Jamie 5, A Feast for Crows, that Tywin hasn't smiled since the day his wife Joanna died. It makes for a great contrast here between Tywin and Joffrey, and it's a parallel with Stannis at the start of the next chapter, when he also has no emotional reaction to hearing about the Red Wedding. And like Jenna said, yeah, as you say, he hasn't smiled since his wife died, but as she also says, Tywin has smiled before that, including at the downfall of his enemies, namely Ellen Tarbeck. So while Tywin is outwardly unemotional these days, that doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on inside, as we'll talk about more later. I love that what makes everything else go out of Tyrion's head, as George writes, what makes the chapter so far seem irrelevant to him, isn't actually the news of the Red Wedding. It's the sight of Cersei and Joffrey happy. Because, like I said in the synopsis, anything that makes them happy is guaranteed to make other people very, very sad. And like you say, Tyrion's on top of that list. So that's that's just a sign of Lannister dysfunction. That's what really immediately throws him off, is just his family being happy. Tyrion isn't a neutral POV on the Red Wedding. The news is filtered through his status not only as a member of this opposing political faction, but as a member of the Lannister family. So he sees this through the lens of his toxic relationships, because everyone in this room is a Lannister. I mean, besides Maester Pycelle, who's basically an honorary Lannister at this point, I always liked the theory that Pycelle was a, a Lannister bastard. I don't think there's any actual evidence for it, but it fits his character really well. Yeah, and I love what you're saying about Tywin possibly smiling on the inside. I think that is one thing Charles Dance could bring to the performance of Tywin yes. Lannister, because yes. when he sits there as grim and monotone as ever, you can still see that sparkle in his eye that like, yeah, I did a good thing here. I got it done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walder Frey's message is stated in the heraldry of Westeros, catching a fat trout and wolf pelts as wedding gifts. Part of me wonders if the wording is informed by plausible deniability. If some Rob loyalist in the Riverland shot down this raven, it'd be really bad if it said, I killed Rob Stark and his mother and his little dog, too. <laughs> so this just adds the tiniest morsel of coded language. Lord Tywin would definitely understand, given his hand in the planning of it, but it also makes me think of Illyrio Mopatis in Tyrion 1 and Dance with Dragons. You Westerosi are all the same. You sew some beast on a scrap of silk, and suddenly you are all lions or dragons or eagles. Walder Frey's poetry, if you can call it that, contrasts with Joffrey's literalism, who exclaims, He's dead! before Tyrion could put <laughs> all the pieces together. I'll give Tyrion some credit. He does think of Sansa first here. And for all her piety, her dead family members just keep piling up. Tyrion and Cersei make their jests about whether wars win themselves or not, which allows Tywin to interject the war has in fact not been won. I really like this part because it serves two purposes. First, we are triangulating around Tywin, Tyrion, and Cersei, which will drive the King's Landing plot from here until the end of the book, and also act as a springboard into Cersei being a point of view in the next one. But it also allows George to smuggle in some exposition. He flipped the game board over at the Red Wedding, but the game is not over. He needs to pick up the pieces and show the readers what new normal looks like. 
The focus here is specifically on the Riverlands, which is extremely useful to us, since we won't see the Riverlands much in the back third of this book. The Tullys, Malisters, and Blackwoods will remain loyal to the Stark cause, and two of those three houses will be visited upon by Jamie Lannister in the following books. Tywin hints at the long-standing Blackwood Bra- Bracken feud, which he'll use to his advantage. By doing so, he doesn't really have to commit any Lannister forces specifically, which is a continuation of how he used the phrase in the Boltons to end the Stark threat too. The only castle that won't be offered any chance of restitution is Harrenhal, currently held by Vargar Hote, even if it's Peter Baelish's in name. Tyrion instantly sees that his father is trying to wring every last drip of usefulness out of the mountain, before possibly handing him over to the Martells, but more importantly that Littlefinger takes the largest castle in the kingdoms without overt violence. I also feel like this is a little alarm bell from George. It's been a long time since we've seen or heard much from Littlefinger, as Tyrion himself says, and as we mentioned in our Red Wedding episodes, he's one of those non-point-of-view characters who will play a prominent role in the last act of A Storm of Swords. I love that as soon as Tywin mentions that one castle in the Riverlands won't be allowed to surrender, Tyrion knows exactly which one it is. Because, as he thinks, he knows his dad that well, as Sansa knew him better than he thought. On the surface, Tywin is eliminating the Bloody Mummers because, unlike the Malisters and the Blackwoods and so on, the Mummers have no home in Westeros to peaceably return to. They're not going to hammer their swords into plowshares like Jaime thought about Steelshanks Walton. Those swords are their livelihood, and if they can't find a war, they'll make one. Always a problem with mercenaries. So Tywin can say he's enforcing the king's peace, except for the inconvenient little detail that he's the one who hired the Mummers in the first place. And now he's talking like, we we gotta get rid of these freaks who just magically appeared in (laughs) Westeros one day. Sellswords follow the money, Tywin. Who was paying them? Tyrion knows his dad well enough to know he's actually motivated by pride and spite. The lords of the Riverlands can be folded back into the king's peace because they never really did anything to Tywin. But the mummers made him look bad by selling him out to Roose Bolton, who now also works for Tywin. Like Roose himself told Jaime, there are pardons for the likes of him but none for Vargo Hope, because he's expendable, replaceable, and has no real constituency. A lot of what Tywin is doing in Book 3 is trying to erase the events of Books 1 and 2 from public memory, all the humiliations and defeats he suffered. He wants the narrative to start with his victory at the Blackwater. That's why he was even more scornful than usual with the Tyrion when they reunited after the battle, and that's why he's painting Harrenhal in yet another coat of blood. And he's doing it with Gregor, using one monster to kill a bunch of others. That's the giveaway. Sure, the realm would be better off without the mummers, as Tywin says, but you know who else could improve life in Westeros just by dying? That's right, Gregor Clegane. And yet, Tywin will later refuse to hand over his head to the Martells. Because Gregor, unlike the bloody mummers, never made Tywin look stupid. That primal need for revenge lurks under all of Tywin's surface maneuvers, which is worth keeping in mind in terms of what Joffrey does next. Yeah, while Tywin and Tyrion are thinking about reassembling the game board, Joffrey is more interested in destroying it further. (laughs) I'm hesitant to call this a heightening of Joffrey's character, because he's just been a little shit always, but this chapter (laughs) is unflinching in showing how Joffrey is the worst shit imaginable. As Emmett called out back in Sansa 3, this really is deft writing from George. Joffrey only appears thrice in A Storm of Swords, Sansa's wedding the Red Wedding news here, and then, of course, his own wedding where he dies. 
The three perfect moments for Joffrey to go full mask off in his awfulness, which is saying something since he's mostly mask off in his day-to-day routine, (laughs) deploying Joffrey for maximum effectiveness so that it makes your skin crawl without being excessive or too cartoonish, but he is cartoonishly evil here, though I say that with affection and with love. His whole kill-them-all shtick when it comes to the rebel houses is to be expected, but it's the request for Rob's head to feed to Sansa that stands out as exceptional. That is beyond the pale for even this group of seasoned war criminals and monsters. Cersei tries to play it off as a joke, but Joffrey quickly spurns that idea. There's not even a sense of eloquence or maturity to his viciousness. He refers to Rob's quote-unquote stupid head with all the insight of a toddler. It's almost like he's here as one last F.U. to the reader, and I mean that with love. If Arya taking the axe in the back of the head was an extra stab in the heart, then Joffrey here is the equivalent of pissing on your corpse. (laughs) There are two wolves inside George R. R. Martin. The one who made him wait to write the Red Wedding until A Storm of Swords was done, and the one who spends this chapter gleefully rubbing our faces (laughs) in that same pain. You can easily imagine a more restrained version of this scene. Maybe we just see Joffrey giggling before the adults take over. Maybe he's not even here and we see him gloating from afar in a later Sansa chapter or something. But no, we gotta see Joffrey in all his glory just to emphasize who this has all been for. Just to show us how Joffrey is not only politically benefiting from the Red Wedding, he's fucking loving it. He's getting (laughs) off on it, maybe literally. Joffrey has resented Rob since near the very beginning of the story. Hated him for being older and stronger, for fighting his own battles, for honestly being the kind of splendid, handsome warrior king Joffrey thinks he ought to be. As we'll see later in the chapter, Joffrey hero-worships Robert, and it must rub him pretty raw that Rob is the one who actually resembles Robert in his glory days from his name on down. And now Rob's dead, and Joffrey's still the king, so he gets to brag about it. And it's so galling in part because, as Tyrion thinks, Joffrey is acting like he personally defeated Rob in single combat, when in fact Joffrey has never fought his own battles the way Rob always did. So Joffrey gets all the benefit for doing none of the work, and he still gets to dance on Rob's grave. Partially, of course, George is just making us hate Joffrey more than ever, so he can weaponize that hatred against us when he dies and briefly turns back into just another kid in his last couple moments. But Joffrey, I think, also works best as a character in context with other more complex characters who reveal themselves in their reactions to him. It's a problem in plain sight. The king is a sadistic teenager with no interest in politics outside of choosing targets. There's no ambiguity here, no way to smoothly integrate him into something resembling governance by adults. Even Cersei's delusions are wearing thin. She keeps trying to deflect in this chapter. She blames Robert, she blames Tyrion. But as with Ned Stark's execution, there is nothing she can do if Joffrey just point-blank refuses to do and say what she tells him to. The request for Rob's head isn't something she can reframe, but is she going to say it's like a mischief with a head, like mischief (laughs) with a cat later? It's not only that it's violent. Like you said, it's that it's so childishly violent. It can't be made cool or expedient or anything but the royal equivalent of burning ants with a magnifying glass. Kevon is so horrified his little rich guy monocle pops out. (laughs) But wait a minute, this is the same Kevon Lannister who was ordered to set the Riverlands on fire. His response to that order was not shock or horror or even a counter-argument, but word for word, they will burn, my lord. Why is that? Because Tywin's horrible violence fits within the social structure. It's directed at peasants, sex workers, ordinary soldiers, 
When he moves against people in his own social circle, he tends to work through surrogates to preserve not only plausible deniability, but also a veneer of civility. Tywin makes it just possible to work for him while still feeling okay about yourself, as long as you're very good at ignoring anything you don't want to see. The political problem of Joffrey, not the moral problem, but the political problem of <laughs> Joffrey, is that he makes that impossible. When you work for him, you can't ignore the are we the baddies question. Everyone reacts to that in their own way. Operators like Varus and Littlefinger just roll their eyes and carry on, because they don't actually work for him, and they're also not related to him. The Tyrells come up with a rather permanent solution to the Joffrey problem, because their interests are equally served by the more tractable Tommen. But Cersei? She has to lie to herself and everyone else, saying that Joffrey is joking about the head, which, by the way, would still be pretty messed up, <laughs> and then somehow keep smiling and nodding when he says, no, I'm not joking, Mom, I'm really just that crazy. And Kevon can't keep telling himself that he is one of the reasonable adults in the room, which is his entire identity, if he has to watch the king for whom he burned down the Riverlands plan out a long, glorious reign of psycho shit. As for Tyrion, he probably has the most tortured relationship to Joffrey of any of them, because their mutual hatred is right there on the surface. And yet there was nothing for Tyrion to practically do about it other than murder the little bastard. The irony in terms of how this plays out is that Tyrion doesn't kill Joffrey, never actually plans to kill Joffrey. But it looks even to fair-minded observers that he did, because he so obviously <laughs> wants to. George complicates Tyrion's reactions to his monstrous nephew in interesting ways. Tyrion here defends Sansa specifically as her husband. Sansa is no longer Joffrey's plaything, he says, because I, Tyrion, have brought her under my protection. But that marriage is a sham that feels like a prison for both of them. We just saw that. And it quickly comes apart after Joffrey dies. And Tyrion, even if he, even with the best of intentions, he can't really make good on that promise. Because Joffrey has Kingsguard knights to do his bidding. And Tyrion doesn't. So as in A Clash of Kings, while Tyrion's insults to Joffrey are cathartic, like at least someone's calling him a monster, they don't amount to anything other than evidence for the prosecution at Tyrion's trial. And they allow Cersei to pretend to claim the high ground again, her favorite thing. Yeah, this whole exchange is pretty iconic between Tywin, Tyrion, and Joffrey. I do think in part to the performances given in the scene by Charles Dance, Jack Gleason, and Peter Dinklage in the S3 finale, Misa. It's probably the highlight of that episode specifically. Tyrion's tongue does, of course, go on to damn him, while Tywin dressing down Joffrey here is, like you said, heartbreaking. The worst person you know made a great point meme made manifest. <laughs> the hypocrisy and depravity of Tywin Lannister is a topic we will get to soon, but I can't lie. Him telling Joffrey to just shut the fuck up does legitimately feel good. <laughs> At this point, Tywin can ignore some of Tyrion's witticism, but Tywin is not about to suffer the king whose throne he's securing being a complete fail son of a ruler. Tywin pulls out the big guns, comparing Joffrey to the Mad King. I'll just admit here that Joffrey, secret Targaryen, is my favorite. I know it's wrong, but I'd love it to be true tinfoil out there though that's mostly downstream from the Jamie Cersei Targaryen theories, which I also adore. But do not believe. We got enough <laughs> secret Targaryens to worry about as it is. Mm -hmm. Don't need any more. Tywin's lecture on civility is a bit rich, however. Liter literal war criminal here telling Joffrey how to do Westerosi respectability politics is a laugher. This man just engineered cold-blooded regicide on a mass scale. The words he actually says sound good, may even legit be good counsel, but it's who is saying it that I think we should be paying attention to. 
but we can save the moral hypocrisy of Tywin Lannister for chapter's end. Instead, we can focus on an entirely other way Tywin Lannister is a shithead, the sexual control he tries to wield over everyone. We've seen him do it to Tyrion and Sansa, he's already done it to Cersei once with Robert and now hoping again with the Tyrell match, and now he's telling his grandson he better get to fucking as his primary royal objective. And these are like the least despicable sex crimes under Tywin's belt, which what he did to Taisha is unforgivable. His role at top of the patriarchal system deserves the same level of scorn as his war crimes, though it's talked about way less. Coming back to Tyrion, though, he gets to at least enjoy his hated father and his hated nephew going at it. It's truly one of the few pieces of unproblematic joy he gets in this entire book. Joffrey accuses his grandfather of hiding under Casterly Rock, while his quote-unquote father, Robert Baratheon, actually won the war. Clearly, Joffrey wants the heartbreaking, the worst person in the world just made a great point, crown back. (laughs) But there's also a tiny irony in Joff's statement, or maybe a double meaning, because his actual father, Jaime, did actually kill the king and help win the war. Mm Mm-hmm. Joffrey serves no purpose at this point anymore. One could argue maybe never served any real purpose. So Tywin just summarily ignores him after this jab. As Shotirian says, he sends the king to bed without supper and has him drugged to boot. I think it's clear that Tywin blames Cersei for the way Joffrey is, which I think is well observed, but probably comes with a healthy dose of misogyny in assuming the mother is inherently responsible for how the kid turned out. Surely the laughably distant and cruel family he was born into, not to mention the unspeakable wealth, had no role in Joffrey becoming who he is. Cersei is damned in Tywin's eyes regardless. Either Joffrey, the quote-unquote strong king, acts boldly line from her, or if it was from Robert, which I kind of doubt, she should have been there to stamp that idiocy out, according to Tywin. Having failed to properly raise a king, Tywin then dismisses her next. And not to give Cersei a total pass, because I'm pretty sure she papers over Joffrey murdering a cat as quote-unquote some mischief, which I simply cannot abide. Yes, some mischief is what you describe when you break a window, not cut open a cat. Yeah, this is this little bit where Joffrey defies Tywin is, is probably my favorite Joffrey moment in the books. I think mm-hmm. Joffrey is one of the characters that was most enhanced by the show because of what a great job Jack Leeson did and some dialogue they gave him. Like there's that he gets a lot more jokes. There's that bit I love where uh, it's similar to the books where Joffrey Marcella's sailing off to Dorne and Tommen is crying and Joffrey says, "Stop it, princes don't cry." And Sansa, little nerd that she is, says, "Well, actually, these two people in history cried." And Joffrey says, "They weren't princes, were they?" So not really relevant, is it? <laughs> he's just he's because he's a little older as a character. He's a, he's more sarcastic and funny, I think, in the show. But what makes this so funny isn't even him. It's Tywin just barely keeping himself (laughs) from smacking his grandson across the face. I love how George describes Tywin's ice-cold tone and how he just ignores Joffrey, which is way more insulting than anything else he could have done. Joffrey is simply beneath his notice. Part of that is because he's 13, of course, but Tywin brings up Aerys for a reason. This is how Tywin acted with him, too. Tywin Lannister considers himself to be the true ruler of Westeros, and everyone who interacts with him kind of knows it. I think about Pycelle hoping Tywin could somehow end up king at the end of Robert's Rebellion, which really politically makes no sense, but it's kind of just how Tywin acts. It's a function of his pride, insulted first by his father's poor reputation, and then by how Aerys treated him as the years went on. And now he's being directly insulted by this infant, for whom he just fought a war and committed a horrible atrocity. 
and Joffrey specifically insulting Tywin about how he handled Aerys. This is Tywin's worst nightmare, other than, you know, Tyrion doing anything. It's not even about what Joffrey actually says, which I don't think is true anyway, the, the bit about uh, Tywin being afraid of Aerys. I don't think, you know, Tywin wasn't holding back from fighting the Mad King out of fear. That was political calculation. The defiance itself is the point. Joffrey is showing Tywin what he would be like as king, and Tywin cannot stand the idea of having to do this again. In the same way that Renly crowning himself as a nightmare for Stannis because it's just young Robert all over again. I agree though, Tywin has no one to blame but himself. Like Varys raised young Griff at a distance, but at least he hired a bunch of people to make sure he turned out semi-presentable. Tywin didn't even do that for Joffrey. He just left the grandkids with Robert and Cersei, neither of whom he ever took seriously, as this chapter may explain. It's an extension of how Tywin failed to raise his kids. He never cared that Jaime was broken after the king's slaying. He never cared that Cersei was chafing against the expectations of her gender, and he never cared about Tyrion. Full stop. So even if Tywin was able to justify his atrocities, it's not actually in service of anything. Because as we'll see in A Feast for Crows, once he's gone, his regime devours itself alive. With just Tyrion left with Tywin, Tywin's concerns over Joffrey shows, saying he'll require a sharp lesson. Tyrion thinks of his own sharp lesson at age 13, George invoking Tysha in the reader's mind without using her name or recalling the grisly details. Just a passing reference to what will be at the heart of the final Tyrion-Tywin face-off, and it comes and goes as quick as a crossbow bolt. Tyrion asks about the Red Wedding plot, which Tywin rejects the phrasing of. More respectability politics from Tywin, because we absolutely cannot call a secret murder plan to kill an entire army in cold blood <laughs> while the victims are drunk a fucking plot. Am I right? <laughs> get bent, my lord. Mm -hmm. Don't worry, we are going to get to the Tywin dunking very soon. Tywin basically says the whole thing was on a need-to-know basis, and there was no need for Tyrion to know. I think the part that sticks out to me this go-around, though, is how he refers to how important it was to cheaply eliminate Rob Stark. Like he's penny-pinching genocide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think Tywin is really concerned with the welfare of his troops beyond just having enough of them to enforce military dominance, so his concern really is just protecting the Lannister coffers, ostensibly the source of their power and prestige in Westeros. And you gotta hand it to him, I guess. By all accounts, this was really cheap. Maybe there are some gold payments in there somewhere, but using his place atop the feudal system, Tywin is able to enrich his co-conspirators with titles and lands that aren't even his, without a cent of gold leaving the rock. The phrase can get River Run, the Boltons Winterfell, and all the accompanying titles and incomes that go with it, as well as all the troubles. Lots of fun, though, comes out when the topic turns to Doran. Most of all that Prince Oberyn tried to crown a baby Viserys after the fall of Aerys. I guess the Red Viper takes the heartbreaking, the best person you know, just made a really terrible point, <laughs> crown. John Aaron had to soothe that over, and Dornish-Lannister relations have been frosty ever since, and don't seem to have defrosted since the prince arrived in the capital. And Oberyn apparently isn't going to settle for just Gregor Clegane, he's interested in the man on top. The man on top then responds that Oberyn has no proof, and that the mountain is unlikely to confess it either. A sad, sad irony given that Clegane does confess his crimes while he fruit ninjas Oberyn's head at the trial. <laughs> Next comes the chatter about Elia and her kids. 
And I think this is very, very important placement in the context of what comes next. We are minutes away from discussing Tywin's why is it nobler to kill a thousand men in battle than twelve at dinner stick, which some in the fandom have confused for wisdom. That line has to be juxtaposed with what Tywin says right here, right before, that murdering children was necessary, that Aegon and Rhaenys had to be killed to prove some dumb fucking point about loyalty to the new regime. The whole performance of violence starts unraveling here, not just Tywin's, but the systemic violent ideology Westeros is built on, down to Robert not wanting to be seen as a baby killer because of hero ideals. Tywin can talk about restoring the king's justice all he wants. It's a lie. It's especially a lie coming out of his mouth. Even his excuse about the murder of Elia makes my blood boil, because I did not tell him to spare her takes absolutely no responsibility for the violence done in his name, and is probably feigning obliviousness too. He says he doesn't know what he had yet in Clegane, even though he probably would have known that Clegane burned his younger brother's face and was heavily implicated in the death of his family members. So again, color me doubtful. But the line that really fucks me up though, the one that really messes me up, is this plea to Tyrion that surely I, the good lord Tywin Lannister, would never order something like the rape of Elia Martell. I would never do such a thing. Uh, hello? Hello? <laughs> Tysha? <laughs> like the ground zeros we have for Tywin's exceptional cruelty is the story of Tysha. You really get the sense this is how Tywin has always operated, both personally and politically. He just talks right past you. He overwhelms you with his narrative and belittles you if you try to poke any holes in it. He makes you feel like you're the problem. You're just being silly and stubborn and immature. Come on, get on board with the master plan like everyone else. And I think you're right that the key to unraveling this is the juxtaposition between the Red Wedding and the Sack of King's Landing where Rhaegar's family was wiped out. And George didn't have to write it this way. Like, I can easily imagine these conversations happening in separate scenes, even separate chapters. Instead, he wove them together, showing us how the Red Wedding isn't an isolated event. It's the latest expression of the logic that has guided Tywin's life. The effect is like time travel. We go from the immediate fallout of Tywin's present-day atrocities to the long-term effects of his past atrocities. Oberyn in the present shows us how the Starks would look at the Lannisters years down the line. It's not going to turn out that way because the Lannisters won't actually be in charge much longer. But the point is that Tywin's brute force methods don't solve problems. They just plant the seeds for later problems, and the Martells prove that. Tywin says he had to go overboard with Rob in order to end the war. But going overboard with the Martells almost kept the last war going. Oberyn was mobilizing Dorne to rebel against Robert in Viserys' name. And while Duran Martell was able to narrowly avoid that, it was only because he was coming up with a longer-term plan to overthrow Tywin. <laughs> the backlash to Tywin's methods eat away at his accomplishments, and we see here that he has learned all the wrong lessons. The decision to keep Gregor Clegane alive is the big gap in Tywin's armor. You can tell what a big deal it is by how surprised Tyrion is. Tyrion knows his father well, after all, we've already seen that in this chapter. If Tywin really believed in what he was telling Joffrey earlier, about helping enemies back to their feet, doing what was necessary to preserve the king's peace after a war, he would hand the mountain right over to the Martells without hesitating. There is no better way to improve relations with Dorne. Not doing that is a guaranteed way of making those relations even worse than they already are. I think one of Tywin's major weaknesses is that he does not put effort into understanding other people and how they think. He just assumes they'll do what he wants them to. That's why Rob was able to outwit him early on in the war. 
That's why Tywin thinks Jaime will always knuckle under and follow his orders. And that's why Tywin thinks that Oberyn will be satisfied with Amory Lorch's cold corpse. Tyrion knows that's not the case. Not only is Oberyn certain that it was Gregor who killed Aelia and Little Aegon, correctly, but he wants fresh blood. He wants to spill it himself. He's got so much venom stored up after all these years, he wants to take it out on someone. Tywin is willing to risk that. And why? Because, he says, Gregor inspires terror in their enemies. Like Stannis, Tywin ultimately believes in ruling through fear. Not only is that suspect on its own terms, I don't even think it works. Like, did the existence of Gregor Clegane stop Catelyn from snatching Tyrion, or Rob from marching against the Lannisters, or the Baratheon brothers from hatching their own separate schemes to take the Iron Throne from Joffrey? No, across the board. It didn't even stop the Bloody Mummers from betraying Tywin, and they had seen Gregor's cruelty close up. Besides, isn't the war supposed to be basically over? Who is Gregor supposed to intimidate at this point? That kind of guy is a detriment in peacetime. I think what's really going on here is that Tywin considers handing over Gregor to be an acknowledgement that he, Tywin, did something wrong. And he is never going to admit that because of the pride that defines him as a character. In his mind, everything he has done is justified in order to establish and preserve the glory of House Lannister, tarnished by his father's behavior. So once he starts admitting that he crossed a line in the process, where does it end? If the sack was a sin against gods and men, isn't the Red Wedding? You can see the momentum here, the sunk cost fallacy that has set in over the years, forcing Tywin to create this narrative of self-justification. It extends to his family relationships as well. The personal is political. The same instincts that led Tywin to murder Rhaegar's children also led him to inflict gang rape on Tysha in order to teach a sharp lesson to Tyrion, as he would put it. And yeah, it's so galling how Tywin says, even you would not accuse me of ordering a rape. Even you. Like, this is Tyrion's irrational projection. Tywin mm -hmm. literally gave that order when it came to Tysha. So where does he get off acting like any accusation is bad faith? It is left ambiguous whether or not Tywin is telling the truth here about the orders he gave or didn't give. And to an extent, I think it doesn't really matter. The buck stops with Tywin. He has to own the consequences of what he unleashed, as with the unexpected death of Catelyn at the Red Wedding. But given the precedent of Tysha, and how Tywin irrationally refuses to give up Gregor, I think I agree with what Oberyn says later in the book. Tywin did give the order to rape Elia to satisfy his wounded pride from when she got to marry Rhaegar instead of Cersei. Ultimately, Tyrion is wrong when he says there is no blood in Tywin Lannister. He is as driven by his emotions as anyone else. He just happens to have the power to work them out on a continental scale. So now we actually get to the specific Red Wedding details. George confirmed the bombshell event early on in the chapter, but Joffrey stole its thunder away, and now we get some of those actual details, including confirming the death of Catelyn on top of Rob's. The logistics are fairly plain to us at this point. We know Tywin secretly backed the whole thing, while Frey and Bolton did more of the day-to-day -day project management. But it's the quote we've alluded to for some time now. Tywin's, explain to me why it is more noble to kill a thousand men in battle than a dozen at dinner. Some people take this sort of statement as a truth, a utilitarian approach, morality as a numbers game. Killing Rob and his liege lord saves countless lives, so it's good. One versus many. But that clearly isn't what George believes. He has this whole other awesome character named Sir Davos Seaworth, who specifically argues against this model of morality, that one life against many lives is no trade-off at all. In the very chapter after this, no less. 
and I'm very confident in saying that Davos Seaworth is a moral vector in this story, more so than Tywin fucking Lannister. A great person has made a great point. Yes, finally. <laughs> we got there. <laughs> we paid it off. <laughs> it falls apart mainly for the reason Emmett voiced in our 200th episode. The other people have a chance to kill you back. You don't need a high degree in ethics to understand the difference between killing someone unprovoked when they are unarmed and not expecting violence versus a situation in which they are and allowed and equipped to return said violence. There is a very clear acceptance of truth and consequence in the latter scenario, even if some of the force to fight are conscripted. They're still, you know, knowing what they're in for. But let's also not forget... Tywin Lannister is a dirty fucking liar. Thanks to Arya, we know it was not just a dozen at dinner. It was the entirety of Rob's army. He literally did kill ten thousands outside while he killed the dozen at dinner. He did both, and is trying to serve to us that somehow that was a practical and reasonable approach to all of this. No, absolutely not. So not only is Tywin's moral calculus wrong, but it isn't even reality. Yeah, that's the key here. This isn't a a good faith effort to defend what Tywin did in practical terms. This is total bullshit. Masquerading is practicality. It really breaks down when you consider it in terms of the small folk, the soldiers that constitute the majority of everyone's army. Tywin frames the Red Wedding as a way of avoiding unnecessary casualties for them. If I didn't do this, we'd still be at war with Robb Stark, and thousands would die as part of that. But like you say, he doesn't count them when it comes to the dozen at dinner line, in which he's pretending that the inside part of the Red Wedding is all that counts. So Tywin decides to start counting the small folk as people mid-sentence. It's a hypocritical smokescreen that sounds impressive, but breaks down when you actually start to think about what happened versus what could have happened. Ultimately, if Tywin's real priority was ending the war, he could have done so very simply by letting Rob retreat back to the north. As we see in Feast Dance, the war doesn't actually end here. Rob's former vassals in both the North and the Riverlands keep the war going, refusing to surrender precisely because of what Tywin and his cronies did to the young wolf and his loyal followers. Tywin's logic exists to separate himself from someone like Joffrey, someone like the Mad King, that's what he says early on in this chapter. But the reality I think George is going for is that he does the same shit they do, just with a different personality. And just like them... His brutality gives birth to backlash. George is allowing Tywin to explain himself, so the reader has something more complicated to work through with the Red Wedding than just cartoon mustache twirling and going, Mwahaha. But that's not to say that Tywin's argument makes sense. And George makes his corruption clear after his death. There's a reason when we get to Feast for Crows that his corpse stinks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sadly, the one time we the readers need Tyrion to use that tongue of his, he has nothing which allows Tywin to neatly segue from being owned by his own logic to let us know that the NWO, New Westerosi Order, will look like. Sir Emmon Frey will eventually take Riverrun, various Lannisters will marry Frey girls, and Roose Bolton becomes Warden of the North and will hold Arya Stark as hostage. I do like the mention of Renly's ghost in the same breath, a cute little hint at the deception that will occur with Faria. I honestly wonder what I thought about this the first time through, without knowledge of the Jane Poole deception. Most likely, I conjured some narrative of maybe the Hound being an opportunist and handing Arya over to the Bolton in exchange for his life, or whatever. But as we discussed last time, the idea of Sandor actually doing violence to Arya doesn't hold up to scrutiny. But it does have some gravity here in the moment, after how Arya 11 ended, for Tyrion 6 to end with the mention of her recovery. 
Which, of course, brings us back to Tywin once again involving himself in other people's <laughs> fucking business. Like, literally the business about whether Tyron will... Like, literally the business about whether Tyrion will get his child bride with child. Yet another clear indicator of the type of person Tywin Lannister is, and why this chapter is unapologetic in revealing the cruel character that he is. Not a cold, calculating, practical one, as words would lead some to believe. As they say, words are wind. There are moments when this chapter threatens to become too focused on exposition, as George is, is frantically moving his pieces around the game board of Westeros in reaction to the Red Wedding, but he always keeps it grounded in character, which we see at the end. Unlike with Arya and Catelyn, the Red Wedding is not the end of the world for Tyrion, no matter how much he may personally disapprove of it. What it amounts to for him is the political calculation behind his marriage being laid bare. When Tywin first proposed the match between Tyrion and Sansa, he sold it to Tyrion as a ticket to his own castle. Hey, your son could be the heir to Winterfell. Tyrion pointed out that that didn't really make sense. Rob's future children would have a better claim. And Tywin never really offered a counter-argument, saying only that some wars are won with quills and ravens, as Tyrion quotes back to him here. Now Tyrion finds out what his father was up to, and now the horrible logic of his marriage to Sansa becomes clear. It's not only that Tyrion is supposed to father the next Lord Paramount of the North on his child bride, it's that he now has to do so in the wake of his father killing her mother and brother, with both Tyrion and Sansa now knowing that the only reason their marriage happened at all is because Tywin had this cooking on the back burner. So the chapter ends where it started, with, Tywin, with Tyrion contemplating the prison that is his marriage, in which he is not only made unhappy, but he is made responsible for enforcing that unhappiness on Sansa. George is showing us how large-scale war crimes and personal intimate abuse are connected. What they have in common is a desire for power, as well as a lack of any concern for those who suffer while you climb the ladder. George is also linking Sansa to Tysha, showing us how Tywin is still trying to control Tyrion's sexuality and treating women like objects within that sharp lesson. Like I've been saying, the personal is political, and so while most of this chapter is about the damage Tywin has inflicted outside the family, it also takes us one step closer to how this storyline will wrap up in A Storm of Swords, with Tyrion shooting his dad in the balls, <laughs> as punishment for trying to control his. So, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, as Tywin is moving those pieces around the game board of Westeros, he mentions that, yeah, the Blackfish is still holding out at River Run. he's a problem, but we'll be, we'll be able to keep him helpless so long as the Freys hold Edmure hostage, not considering that Ryman Frey will somehow, somehow manage to fuck that up. Uh, did I mention in the last episode that Sir Ryman Frey sucks? <laughs> the absolute worst. Not only is he cruel, he is just staggeringly dumb, as we'll get to in the Jamie chapters in the Feast for Crows, where Jamie goes, you could not, you, there's no way you could have handled this more poorly than the way you handled this. <laughs> Tywin also mentions that the Brackens can be persuaded to put the Blackwoods under siege, that's how he's going to handle that, and that is something we also see unfold in Jamie chapters. Jamie shows up for the end of that siege in A Dance with Dragons, which I really like because... While it is specifically related to the Red Wedding, it's also just the thousandth incarnation of the Brackens and the Blackwoods fighting each other, which is why Tywin knows that. He's like, yeah, I can get those assholes to fight each other all day. That's yeah. no problem. And that was one of the fun little bits in House of the Dragon, too, when the little Blackwood kid gutted the Bracken guy uh, yes. in the Storm's End. Exactly. That's been going on since, since the backstory and beyond. 
So moving into theory and discussion, something Tyrion mentions in passing is that he's trying to make uh, sense of Littlefinger's books, and he's got all these guys who owed the crown money, and they're now very conveniently dead. And as it turns out, these are the guys, the Antlermen, that uh, Joffrey flung over the walls during the Battle of Blackwater, that these were all people that Varys had said were loyal to Stannis, that they were, Varys had brought the news to Tyrion, that they were all conspiring to, to open the gates to Stannis, let him in, let him take the throne, so Joffrey had them all killed. And now Tyrion's finding out, huh, <laughs> that's interesting that they all owed the crown money. So I think there is there is something going on there. It's difficult to say what exactly, but I think this is part of Littlefinger's whole conspiracy to rig the the, the finances of the government, that... Uh, however Varys came up with that list, it might have been Littlefinger feeding names to him of people he knew uh, owed money to the crown so he could he could mess with the crown kind of at will by, by taking them off the, the debt list. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things there because anytime Varys is talking about something that's related to Littlefinger's books, you got to think that those two might be, you know, kind of playing a little game here. Varys might be like, these guys might be, you know, crucial to uh, Littlefinger's uh, neo-Italian pre-capitalism politics and right, why don't point. I just feed him to Joffrey um, but I also like <laughs> the idea that Littlefinger is just kind of maybe just sowing some chaos a little bit too because his weapon is gold dragons and if he can spread that around um, clearly he's okay with someone other than Joffrey in charge and just like kind of distracting the vicious boy king so he can work on his plans also maybe has some value. Um, I don't know. I actually really didn't think about it until you brought this up a couple weeks ago to me. Uh, but it is kind of fascinating because this is something that I don't know if it'll come up, but it could be part of what we find out Littlefinger's bigger plans are beyond, you know, what he's doing with Sansa, of course. But he might have some other, you know, irons in the fire or just some other backing that we don't know about politically yet. That's a good way of putting it, because it's interesting how much Littlefinger is involved with stuff in the capital. Not just this, but he tells Sansa later in the book, hey, the Kettle Blacks are working for me, which is a kind of a big revelation at the time that hasn't really led to anything. And who knows if it is supposed to, because Littlefinger's trajectory, even without looking at the show, seems pretty clearly headed to the north, that he's going to go north with Sansa and that his his demise will somehow happen there, tied into the prophecy we talked about uh, previously with the Ghost of High Heart talking about uh, the maid who had the vipers in her hair at the purple wedding slaying the giant in the castle made of snow. So who knows if any of that's going to actually pay off. Same with Littlefinger being the Lord of Harrenhal, which comes up in this chapter. I sincerely doubt he's ever going to go there or even really plan to go there. I think, I don't know if Littlefinger ever wanted to be Lord of the Riverlands on the ground so much as use that title to be able to marry Lysa, which is what he he talks about in this book. And so... Part of me thinks, yeah, that that Littlefinger, that George is showing us these details, not because Littlefinger is actually going to be in the position to bring the government down, because I think the Lannister regime is going to go down anyway. But maybe, maybe just as signposts to the reader of the kind of the, the modern economic system that you're talking about. Maybe George is like trying to show us little hints, like, hey, this is this is kind of the world that's coming for Westeros. And even if Littlefinger himself is not allowed to bring this about, this is kind of the economic future of how the government's going to be run. And isn't it kind of funny that none of these guys realize what's happening? It is kind of, I think, a long-running joke that no one quite picks up on what Littlefinger is doing. Even when we get to the veil in that released Sansa chapter from the Winds of Winter when he's he's preparing to hoard food so he can starve his enemies at will and make a bunch of money when food is rare. And the other lords are like, but but if we sell the food now, then we'll have money. Because <laughs> none, none of them get the whole idea behind what he's doing. That is kind of a running joke that I like. So uh, that is going to wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 6. Thank you so much for listening. 
As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access to our regular episodes, multiple exclusive episodes every month, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And I am Poor Quentin on Twitter and Blue Sky. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find us returning to the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. And my latest Lord of the Rings episode covering book six, chapter six, Many Partings, is out now for all of our $5 and above patrons. Next week, my next Star Wars episode for all of our $5 and above patrons. My third episode is going to come out. My third episode on the original movie covering the introduction of everyone's wise old, everyone's favorite wise old sage, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's going to be A Storm of Swords Davos V, in which we see the other, smaller, weaker royal court, aka Team Stannis, react to the news of the Red Wedding. Spoiler alert, I guess it doesn't go much better. But at least Salador San is there. At least he's having a good time. I <laughs> love always it. having a good time. Exactly. I love that chapter as a mirror to this one, because as, as horrible as everyone's behaving in this chapter, at least they're in charge and have a reason to be happy. And there's a great dynamic in the next chapter where Stannis is like, well, I'm still losing the war, though. <laughs> it's like the, you know, the Simpsons when both Homer and Barney are competing to be an astronaut. And the guy in charge says, in a way, you're both winners. But in another more accurate way, Barney is the winner. <laughs> in another more accurate way, the Lannisters are the winners here, at least for the moment. So uh, thank you again for listening. And we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Davos 5. <laughs>